All right, we're going to talk about strokes. Um, when you think of a stroke, you want to think about an interruption to perfusion um, to the brain. Um, one of the kind of more minor types of strokes that you may hear of is a TIA or transient ischemic attack. So this is a temporary interruption in blood flow. It doesn't destroy brain cells. It's resolving in within 24 hours, um, usually because the clot spontaneously dissolves. However, if someone does have a TIA, this could potentially increase their risk of having another TIA or even an actual stroke down the road. So when you think about the blood flow being interrupted to the brain, depending on the part of the brain that is affected, there will be different symptoms and side effects because different parts of the brain control different things in the body. So that's one thing that we have to consider. If we think of um, a stroke on the left versus the right hemisphere, we'll see different um, side effects. The right hemisphere is um, almost kind of the more worrisome um, one because of the side effects that it produces. The right hemisphere is more involved with visual and spatial awareness. Um, it also relates to the patient lacks judgment. Um, they're impulsive. They're usually disoriented to time, place, and person. Um, so all those things combined are going to potentially lead to some safety issues. Um, they also often, when you think about right versus left hemisphere, when the right hemisphere is the one that is affected in the brain, then we see the symptoms and effects on the left side of the body. When the left hemisphere is where the um, stroke is or where things are affected, then we see the symptoms on the right side of the body. So it's always the opposite side of the body. So in addition with the right hemisphere, they often um, neglect that left side of their body, not even aware that it's there. So again, that would produce some safety concerns if they don't know that that's there and, and aren't able to use that. And with the left hemisphere, um, so it does produce side effects as well, just not as many safety concerns here. So your left hemisphere is primarily responsible for language, mathematic skills, analytic thinking. So we do tend to see more of um, the different types of aphasia um, that could happen here, difficulty writing and reading, doing math. Um, so a lot of times they're a little bit more cautious, a little bit slower to do things when the left hemisphere is affected. Now let's think about types of strokes as far as a clot causing the stroke or a bleed causing the stroke. So there's two main categories that you definitely want to understand. Ischemic versus hemorrhagic. So an ischemic stroke is caused by a clot, either a thr thrombus or an emboli. So an emboli, remember, is when a clot breaks off from one part of the body and then, for example, in this situation, it would go to the brain and cause that stroke. Or they could just have a clot, a thrombus that originates in the brain. So risk factors for an ischemic stroke, high blood pressure, um, uncontrolled diabetes. So if their blood sugars are out of control, that actually affects your vasculature. Um, it can lead to some clots, smoking, sedentary lifestyle, unhealthy diet, History of atrial fibrillation. This is an irregular heart rate. Uh, we'll learn more about that with perfusion, um, but we could see that cause. 
an ischemic stroke. They might have um, prosthetic valves in the heart, a heart attack, genetics, drug use, um, as well as oral contraceptives, especially if the woman is smoking while taking the oral contraceptive. So those are all risk factors for an ischemic stroke. Um, as far as a hemorrhagic stroke, so this is caused by a bleeding um, in the brain. So things that could cause bleeding in the brain, um, they could have an aneurysm. So this is like a bulging in the vessel, and then it starts to leak. Hypertension can also cause this, as well as uncontrolled diabetes, smoking, sedentary lifestyle, unhealthy diet, AFib, um, heart valve disease, prosthetic valve, myocardial infarction, genetics, and drug use. So there's a lot of overlap here with ischemic and hemorrhagic risk factors. Um, as far as things that we want to use to assess patients who have um, a potential or an actual stroke, we, of course, main priority is ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. We're also going to be doing that NIH stroke scale on these patients because we want to see um, what kind of deficits they're having that can help us determine what parts of the brain um, are being affected and um, what potential deficits they may have down the road. Now, some of these might get better as the <clears throat> as the stroke resolves, or some deficits might be permanent. Getting the patient to a stroke center is important. A lot of hospitals are stroke centers and can take care of these patients. They have the accessibility to different surgical procedures that might need to be done and can get things done quickly. We want to get the patient's whole history. big thing we want to know is when did the symptoms start? We have to know that, and then the other big thing we have to know is we have to get these patients in for a scan, doing like a CT MRI, because we need to know right away, is this an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke? And this is time sensitive, so we want to do this quickly. Um, the reason we want to know this is because if they show up on the scan and it shows that they have a, an ischemic stroke, so it's caused by a clot, then there's something we can give them a medication that could totally reverse this and the patient could almost go back to, to normal. Um, and it's called TPA. It's tissue plasminogen activator. And what this is, is a fibrinolytic. So it's actually gonna bust up the clot. So sometimes you hear people call it the clot buster. And another name for it is Ultipase. Um, so again, this is a clot buster. It's gonna bust up the clot but it's time sensitive, like I said. So we ask the patient or whoever's with them, when did the symptoms start? And in most situations, there's this three hour window. So we have to give that clot buster within three hours. If you wait beyond that, then their risk of bleeding increases. And we're giving them a drug that is gonna cause them to bleed. Um, so we have to watch the patient for bleeding once we give them this clot buster. So typically we have to give that within a three-hour window um, of when symptoms have started. Um, once you give that clot buster for an ischemic stroke, you can expect that patients um, beyond that might be given aspirin to help prevent new clots from forming. They might also be put on an anticoagulant. Uh, an example of that would be warfarin, but there's many other types of anticoagulants we could use. Um, because those can also prevent um, new clots from forming as well as other clots that are already there, prevents them from getting bigger. Um, but if the patient has um, a hemorrhagic stroke, 
So if on the scan it shows uh, bleeding, we actually don't want to give a clot buster because, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, that causes bleeding. So with patients who have a hemorrhagic stroke, um, we're not going to be giving a clot buster. We don't want to cause more bleeding and cause the patient to hemorrhage. A lot of times these patients are going to have to go to surgery to evacuate um, some of that blood. And some of the main causes of a hemorrhagic stroke are an aneurysm and an AVM, an arterial arteriovenous malformation. This, this is basically a tangle of abnormal blood vessels that can, um, as someone gets older or if someone's pregnant and the circulation is increasing because of supplying blood to the baby, oftentimes these AVMs become noticeable because they start to leak from the increased pressure. Um, so there's surgical interventions that we could do. Um, we can go in and um, fix these AVMs and fix these aneurysms if that is what's causing the hemorrhagic stroke. So some examples of those surgical interventions are a surgical clipping. So basically they just go in and they clip and they stop the blood flow to that aneurysm and it stops the bleeding. Or they can also put in a coil. It's called an endovascular coiling. So the coil is placed within the aneurysm. It helps clots form around that and then that blocks the blood flow the blood flow, so it stops the bleeding. So some different options there. All the meanwhile, other things that we're worried about with a hemorrhagic stroke is there's a high risk of seizure. So these patients are gonna be placed on an anticonvulsant in most situations. Um, we don't want them to seize because that's gonna cause more issues with perfusion. Um, also with hemorrhagic strokes, there's often a risk of these vasospasms. So where the vasculature is spasming um, and that could lead to further issues as well. We want to watch their blood pressure really closely. They're having all this bleeding. I don't want more pressure because that could increase the risks of um, increased intracranial pressure. So we'll often see these patients put on antihypertensives um, because the heart is actually kind of freaking out when this hemorrhagic stroke occurs and it's trying to pump harder and supply more blood. And that is not going to necessarily be good for the pressure in the brain. So the antihypertensives will be helpful. So here we see this increased intracranial pressure coming up as a potential complication with strokes. So we want to um, watch out for that. We want to do things to help avoid that. We would position the patient appropriately. Um, usually the head of bed is about 30 degrees elevated. We want it high enough to maintain um, uh, to help decrease that pressure in the brain, but we also want it low enough to help maintain that perfusion. So typically 30 degrees is the best head of bed elevation. We want to keep a calm, quiet environment in the room. Um, we don't want, we want to decrease that demand on the body. Um, we don't want the patient really stressed out because then that could increase intracranial pressure. And then we're going to be assessing vitals really frequently because these patients are unstable at this point. And we're also going to be assessing the labs, you know, whether they're bleeding because they have a hemorrhagic stroke or I'm giving them a clot buster that could potentially cause them to bleed. I'm going to watch labs that relate to blood um, and bleeding like the PT, the PTT, the INR, um, hemoglobin hematocrit so that I can um, monitor the patient for any potential complications.
So as far as reducing the risk of um, strokes, one of the main things that we can teach patients is how to control blood pressure, um, how to control diabetes and keeping their blood sugar under control, taking aspirin, um, you know, usually that's recommended like 50 and over to take an aspirin every day to help with prevention of blood clots from forming, um, having a healthy lifestyle, quitting smoking, eating healthy, being more active. And there are groups of patients that are at higher risk of strokes. Um, American Indian, Alaskan Native groups have the highest prevalence of stroke. Black men and women have more strokes than white men and women. Hispanic or Latino men have more strokes than non-Hispanic men. So we could educate these populations of patients to take a lot of these um, precautions and interventions to help lead a healthy lifestyle since they already have a risk factor for having a stroke. And overall, um, these patients, like I said, some could have deficits that totally resolve depending on the severity and how quickly the stroke is caught. And others um, may not be so lucky and may have some permanent effects and require physical therapy, occupational therapy, and rehabilitation. Let's talk about seizures. So seizures is an abnormal, sudden, excessive, uncontrolled electrical discharge in the brain. These can result in injury. We don't have to know the cause to treat it. And we will discuss several different types of medications that we can use to treat. As far as causes for seizures, um, some things that could cause it could be um, alcohol, drug use like cocaine, a low blood sugar because the brain is not getting enough glucose and that could disrupt um, the neural activity. Low oxygen could affect this as well. Low serum sodium and low serum calcium levels. If the kidney and liver aren't functioning properly and waste is building up, that could lead to <clears throat> chemicals building up in the body that could cause a seizure. Um, a traumatic brain injury, a stroke, um, or even a tumor could cause seizures. So there's two main classes and then kind of subcategories that fall under each. Generalized seizures and partial seizures. A generalized seizure is going to involve both cerebral hemispheres. And we can further break this down into tonic-clonic seizures, um, which is tonic-clonic together, or someone could just have a tonic alone, a clonic alone. Also, myoclonic and atonic seizures. So when you think of the word tonic, what is going on there in this type of seizure is there's stiffening occurring. Um, and then with a clonic seizure, there's jerking. So if someone has tonic and clonic together, then we see stiffening and jerking occur within that seizure. <clears throat> with myoclonic seizures, um, there's a lot of jerking, but it only lasts for just a few seconds. The atonic type of seizure is a sudden loss of muscle tone. So these patients just suddenly go limp and they often fall to the floor um, and that's it. And that's all that's occurring. Um, so with generalized seizures, um, there can be, they can have, they can be tired afterwards. There could be acute confusion um, and the lethargy could last many hours after the seizure. With partial seizures, um, these begin in one part of the cerebral hemisphere. We can break those down further into complex partial and simple partial. With a complex partial seizure, these are more concerning because the patient's um, 
have either impaired memory, awareness, or they can go unconscious during a complex partial. So there could be some safety concerns there. A simple partial just isn't quite that bad. They don't lose consciousness. And with partial seizures, you could also see the possibility of having tonic-clonic going on, so that stiffening and jerking. Partial seizures usually happen with adults. Um, these are less responsive to treatment. Um, and a lot of times with um, really any kind of seizure, but more so happens with partial seizures, but you can patients can have this aura where they have a distinct smell, something that they smell, and that lets them know that their seizure is, is going to occur. So that's, in a way, that's kind of nice because they get a little warning. Um, so some patients do have that. And there's usually kind of stages that patients go through with seizures. Um, there's this prodromal where they might have some just kind of emotional changes going on. And then they can have the aura, which is um, an actual smell that they smell, and that's usually pretty distinct for each patient. And then the ictal part of the, um, the stage is the actual seizure occurring. And then they have what's called the post-ictal, and this is where they're recovering. Like I said, they can be really lethargic after having a seizure. Um, sometimes they're not aware that anything even happened. Um, so we're going to assess the patient the whole way through. If they're able to tell us that they have an aura, we want to know what that aura is. And immediately when a patient tells you that something's going to happen, like they have the aura, um, or they might even tell you I'm having a seizure, because sometimes there's these absence seizures where they're just sitting and staring. And this actually happened to me. I had, um, admitted a patient right when he come came to the floor, got him settled in his room. I was going through the admission questions and he just said, I'm having a seizure. I'm like, okay. And he just stared off and it lasted for maybe a minute or two. And then it was over. Um, so you immediately, when that happened, when he said, I'm having a seizure, or if a patient tells you they're having the aura, or you obviously notice they're having stiffening and jerking, you got to look at the clock because part of the, the way that doctors are going to help diagnose different types of seizures is, you know, what kind of symptoms are occurring how long is the seizure occurring, as well as what symptoms do they have in the post-ictal phase once the seizure is over. So you have to be very vigilant and pay close attention um, while this is occurring. So now we do a lot of times see um, children having more seizures than adults because they have excitatory neurotransmitters and these develop way faster than inhibitory neurotransmitters. So that's why a child may have a seizure disorder, um, but then eventually grow out of it once their body has developed more inhibitory neurotransmitters. When someone is having a seizure, one of the concerns is, I mean, the main complication here is what's called status epilepticus. So they can have a prolonged seizure, and this usually lasts 5 to 20 minutes. It's either continuous or it pauses and continues again without recovery. So during this status epilepticus, and really with any type of seizure, because um, we might not know how long it's going to last when it begins, is we got to maintain this patient's airway. I want to make sure that they can breathe. I'm worried about if they vomit during the seizure. I don't want them to choke on that. So if it's, um, if it's safe and you're able to do so, we're, one of the first things we're always going to do is turn the patient on their side. 
making sure that the patient has something soft underneath them to help protect them while they're seizing, help avoid some injury. Um, definitely something we don't want to do is you don't want to hold them down because, you know, especially if they're having like that tonic-clonic stiffening and jerking, you don't want to hold down because that could cause more damage and um, more injury. Um, you do want to know seizure precautions. So I just kind of talked about some of those. So if I know that somebody's at risk or has had a history of seizures, maybe they haven't had a seizure in five years, um, but typically we're going to take precautions to help with that. Um, having things in the room that might be needed, like an airway, could be at the bedside, oxygenation at the bedside. You do not, absolutely do not want to put a padded tongue blade or stick anything in the patient's mouth during a seizure because that could break off and that could hurt the patient. Um, like I said, our best bet is to kind of maintain that airway by turning them to their side. Um, once the seizure's over, you might have to suction some things out of their airway. Um, like I said, don't restrain the patient. Uh, if they have any type of restrictive clothing on during the seizure, do your best to try to loosen that and get that off um, to help prevent um, some damage. And then, like I said, once the seizure is over, um, we're going to be taking the patient's vitals, preferring, performing neurological checks, um, keeping the patient on their side, um, allowing the patient to rest, and of course documenting the seizure as well. So let's consider some actual medications we could give um, for these patients. So during a seizure, if they are having um, a pretty extensive seizure. Sometimes what we'll see used is phenytoin, P-H-E-N-Y-T-O-I-N. This is also known as Dilantin. And this is used for all types of seizures, but it can be especially helpful with status epilepticus, so that prolonged seizure, um, because it helps inhibit the spread of seizure activity. So it can help stop status epilepticus. And we can actually, um, we can administer this IV so again, if I know that somebody has a history of seizures or they're coming in and being admitted for seizures, having IV, um, an IV placed right away would be important in case we need to give a medication like this. Something that we do have to watch out for as far as side effects go is phenytoin is very, um, very harsh on the veins, so we do have to dilute it and flush it with a lot of saline uh, to help protect the vein. It can cause um, things like GI distress, gingival hyperplasia, or gingivitis. Um, it can actually cause problems with vitamin K metabolism, so we could see bleeding issues in these patients who are on this drug. Um, and since bleeding is a concern, patients wouldn't be able to take this drug in an anticoagulant like warfarin, uh, because warfarin also um, can cause bleeding. So that would be contraindicated. So we want to just be careful with this and watch these patients for bleeding and look at their lab values and make sure there's no signs of, of hemorrhage or bleeding anywhere. So other drugs that patients might take on kind of a typical basis, um, gabapentin is a drug that can be used um, for seizures. Um, Lemotrogen is another one. Levetiracetam, it's also called Keppra. Topiramate is another drug that can be used. Um, and as well as valproate and phenobarbital. One of the things that a lot of those drugs have in common 
is that they're metabolized in the liver. So we have to watch liver function when giving these drugs. Um, you know, checking your liver enzymes in the blood and looking for things like jaundice and making sure the liver um, is not being affected by taking those drugs. Some of these drugs do require um, some blood tests to be done if the patient's going to be on them routinely to make sure that the blood levels are appropriate. Valproate, also known as Depakote, is one of those drugs that will be tested. Um, routine blood levels will be tested to make sure that the drug is at an appropriate level in the body. Now, Valproate, um, also known as Depakote, can also cause problems with bleeding and low platelet levels. Um, so we would want to be careful and cognizant and watching for signs of bleeding with that drug. Phenobarbital, um, this drug isn't used quite as much. It's not as desirable because of the sedation that it can cause. And an overdose of phenobarbital can be fatal. So if we have to give this to a patient, you know, maybe they're allergic to all the other meds or something, then we would want to monitor for drowsiness, sleep disturbances, impaired cognition, um, just to make sure that they're not possibly getting too much of the drug. So those are some drugs that we can use for these patients. Um, it's going to be key that patients know to take their drugs on time. They should take them as prescribed to help maintain a therapeutic drug level of that in their body. Um, and we also, when they're on these drugs, since sometimes they can kind of cause um, some cognition issues, a little bit of dizziness, um, we would want to make sure that we are using fall precautions and watching patients as far as safety risks goes.